Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. If the rest of you would open your Bibles, please, to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, second book in the Bible, just to the right of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 35 here today. Exodus 35. We'll be looking at verses 30 through 35. Exodus 35, verses 30 to 35. We're going to be kind of jumping around uh, today, looking at a number of different passages. We won't be staying only in this passage in uh, Exodus 35, but I'll read that in just a moment. But here is something that is um, kind of a universal experience for all human beings in all time periods among all age groups, and throughout all cultures, there's a certain kind of experience that everybody throughout the history of the world can acknowledge having experience, and it is this. It's to have the experience of being stunned by something beautiful. Everybody can identify with that. Whether it be a beautiful sunset, whether it be a gorgeous piece of music, whether it be the appearance of a beautiful bride on her wedding day, as we celebrated here at New Life yesterday, we all can identify with what that's like to to see something so beautiful that it causes you to just kind of stand back, shut your mouth, be silent, and in wonder and in awe, just declare, that's beautiful. That is gorgeous. We're going through a sermon series here at New Life, How to Make Sense of Life, and what we're doing is kind of confronting Sunday after Sunday certain questions that all people from all time periods and all cultures throughout the whole history of the world have dealt with at some point. So a couple of weeks ago we talked about the common question of what is the meaning of life. Last week we talked about how do we make sense of suffering in life. And today the question we're going to be dealing with is how to make sense of beauty. Just the universal experience of acknowledging the presence of of beauty. So other words that are used to describe this would be aesthetics. Aesthetics is kind of a a discipline where um, that which is beautiful is evaluated and assessed. We're going to be talking today about how that beauty is expressed in particular through the arts. And this whole topic of beauty, aesthetics, and the arts is something that evangelical Christians anyway, evangelicals, throughout their history have tended to kind of avoid, my guess is that probably you've never heard a sermon on this topic, on the arts, or just on the nature of beauty. And it just seems like evangelicals in particular get a little bit nervous talking about the arts. And there are some reasons for that. I suppose sometimes when you look into the arts, you see uh, the arts expressing objectionable content. Sometimes there's just strange stuff that makes us a little uncomfortable, makes us nervous. Sometimes in art you find uh, a lot of symbolism and metaphors that are being used, and sometimes it's kind of abstract, it doesn't make much sense, and we get confused, we don't know what to do with it. In other cases, we just see that art is just the expression of something beautiful, and it doesn't really seem very useful to us. It doesn't seem practical. 
And so we think, well, because it doesn't really accomplish anything, I don't really know what to do with it. I can't really use it in evangelism. I can't use it to build something. I, I can't see any practical use to it. And so we kind of look the other way and don't concern ourselves with it. But the fact is, friends, that all of us are influenced by artistic and aesthetic concerns all the time. Every one of you got dressed this morning and put on your clothes and probably considered, at least for a moment, whether the colors went together and the patterns went together. That's an artistic, aesthetic concern. Um, most of you have spent some time in your homes, decorating your homes in a particular way, painting the walls, putting pictures in certain places, all influenced by aesthetic or artistic concerns. Most of you have cars. You probably chose your car, the color of your car, based on your preference for one color over another. That's an aesthetic concern. Uh, those of you who are married chose your spouse, at least in part, because of the aesthetic concern and interest there. Of course, as we listen to music and we watch movies, those are artistic, aesthetic issues. Even when you set the table for dinner, particularly when you have guests over, you might put a certain placemat down and a tablecloth down and a flower in the middle of the table. My wife does such a good job of that when we have people over. That's an artistic, aesthetic endeavor. And so when you think about it, the arts are present in our lives all over the place and certainly deserves the attention and consideration of Christians. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I want to make the case today that beauty, art, aesthetics matter to God. And so it should matter to us as well. And one of the proofs for that is <clears throat> this passage in Exodus chapter 35. So this is the book of Exodus. Uh, Israel has uh, been liberated from bondage in Egypt, and they're moving toward the promised land, and they're led by Moses. God has given certain instructions to Moses to tell the people about how the tabernacle should be constructed, and the tabernacle is the place where God's people would gather, and they would meet with God in worship. And we have a number of very specific instructions about how that tabernacle ought to be built, and here in these verses, 30 through 35 of chapter 35, we get some further instructions. What's very interesting here is it's very clear that God is not merely interested in a tabernacle that is just useful, not just a, you know, four walls and a roof that they can go inside to worship, but he wants the tabernacle to be beautiful and designed well. So let's read this now. Please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Exodus 35, verses 30 to 35. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver, or by a designer, or by an embroiderer in blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, or by a weaver. 
by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Father, please open our eyes to behold the truth of your word. Give us a new appreciation for your beauty today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, again, we're kind of jumping around here. We're not going to stay in just one text like we normally do, but um, I, I want to make the case here for the arts by telling you uh, three things. And the first is this, how art is presented in the Bible. I want to think about that for just a moment. How art is presented to us in the scriptures. And the first thing that I want you to see is that God himself is the preeminent, supreme artist. If you go all the way back to Genesis 1, verse 1, what is the very first thing we learn about God? He's a creator. In the beginning, God created. I mean, we could have learned all kinds of things about God in that first verse, about his wisdom, his justice, his wrath, his goodness. But what God tells us right out of the bat before anything else is that God is a creator, <clears throat> an artist. And as you think about the Bible itself, what, what is the Bible? The Bible is a book of literature to some extent. It's certainly more than just mere literature. But the Bible is a book, a collection of different kinds of artistic achievements in terms of the way God's Word has been written to us. We read God's Word, we hear God's Word to us through an artistic achievement, the Bible. How about Jesus? Much of his teaching was spent doing what? Telling stories, telling parables. Jesus was the master storyteller. It is an art, it's an artistic achievement, achievement to be able to tell a good story, and Jesus emphasized that much in his ministry. As we look at other places in the scriptures, we see words like beautiful being used to describe God himself. Psalm 27, 4, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. We hear a lot of God's various attributes. I mentioned a few already. His omnipresence, his wisdom, his omniscience, his holiness, etc. How often have you heard people talk about God's beauty? That that is a legitimate attribute of God. He's beautiful. It's not just here in Psalm 27, Zechariah chapter 9. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is the goodness and how great his beauty. How great is the beauty of God. We worship a beautiful God. And he's a God interested then in showing his beauty. And we see this in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God puts Adam and Eve there. He gives them a garden to work. And what does God want? Does he want Adam and Eve to just merely survive in that place, just to have their bare necessities so that their life would continue? No, it's more than that. <clears throat> Genesis 2, out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up, <coughs> excuse me, spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God wants to feed Adam and Eve, but he also wants them to be in a place of beauty. I imagine the Garden of Eden was a gorgeous place to live, and that was part of God's desire for his creatures. So God is the preeminent artist. We could go on and on uh, talking about the way that is presented to us in the Bible. 
But the second thing I want you to see is that God's image bearers are also artists. Human beings being made in the image of God. What that means is that we are like God to some extent, that we share some of God's attributes. We don't share all of God's attributes, but we share some of them. God being a spiritual being, God being an intelligent being, a moral being. And the fact that God is an artist and we are made in his image suggests that we also share that particular attribute. That we also have a certain capacity, inclination, and constant urge to create. You just look at the whole history of human civilization. And it's one artistic achievement after another because people are created in the image of a creating artist God. A guy named Lawrence Perrine says this, the primal artistic act was God's creation of the universe out of chaos, shaping the formless into form, and every artist since, on a lesser scale, has sought to imitate him. Every artist, whether they're Christians or not, they might be the most vehement, committed atheist, but if they're an artist, whether they know it or not, they're imitating their creator because they've been created in his image. So throughout the Bible, we see various examples of this. Genesis 4.21, very soon after creation, we see a guy named Jubal. Genesis 4.21, he's the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. So we see early in Genesis, the beginning of music in response to God's creation mandate in Genesis chapter 1. 1 Kings 4.32, we learn about uh, Solomon was a songwriter. According to that verse, he wrote a thousand and five songs. And the passage goes on to talk about Solomon's knowledge of trees and animals. And so it suggests that he was writing songs not just for the purpose of worship in the temple, but he was writing songs about life in God's created world. Solomon the songwriter. 1 Kings 4.32. Do you remember the story of David and Saul? You remember when Saul would get all agitated and angry and get all stirred up in violence? How did David bring him back to earth and soothe him? He played music for him, took his lyre in and played music for Saul. And Saul responded by settling down to the power of music. Well, this finally brings us to this passage here in Exodus 35. And I want to show you some things here that we learn uh, about the arts uh, in this passage. Three things to note from Exodus 35, verses 30 to 35. First is this, artistic gifts come from God. Do you see this very clearly in verse 31 and 32? Referring to this man named Bezalel, 31, it says that he was filled he has filled, God has filled him with the Spirit of God. So God's Holy Spirit is in Bezalel. And through that Spirit comes skill, intelligence, with knowledge, craftsmanship, and even the ability to devise artistic designs. That is a spiritual gift. Arts, the ability to create something beautiful, is something given to us by the Spirit of God. And in this context, it's given to a member of the um, covenant community, but I believe the Spirit of God is the source of all things beautiful, whether they come through believers or even unbelievers. But secondly, we find this. 
that art can be a legitimate vocation for a Christian. Notice in verse 35, God has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or a designer, embroiderer, or a weaver. These are all presumably occupations. These are people who make a living by being a designer or embroiderer or a weaver. And this is a perfectly legitimate thing for any Christian to consider. That is a career or vocation in the arts. And we have a number of people here, even in this congregation. We have aspiring musicians here. We have some aspiring filmmakers getting ready to go out to Los Angeles this summer to pursue a career there. We have uh, uh, John Bow, chairman, I think, of the arts department there at uh, Taylor, right? Did I get that right? Yeah. Um, we have a swordsmith in the congregation. David Della Gardell makes a living out of making swords. Uh, that's an artistic endeavor. And so we see here in Exodus 35 that art is a legitimate vocation. And the third thing we see is that art is valuable for its own sake. That is, it doesn't have to be practical in order to have value or to justify itself. Art is something that can be enjoyed just simply for the intrinsic beauty that is present in it. Not everything has to be evaluated according to its utility or its capacity to accomplish something or serve some practical purpose. So we see this in verse 32. Um, Bezalel is given by the Spirit the ability to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze. Now, God could have you know, been perfectly content with a tabernacle that was just gray, colorless, but apparently God wanted color to be here, gold, silver, bronze. It serves no practical purpose other than to enhance the beauty of the tabernacle. Verse 32 also, the carving of wood. Apparently the wood was made in certain shapes that were aesthetically pleasing. Verse 35, we see this uh, further, fills them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver, designer, embroiderer in blue, purple, scarlet yawns, twined linen. None of these things serve any real practical purpose. They just exist because they look good. And God wanted the tabernacle to be beautiful. So we see here in this passage that God values aesthetics. God values what is beautiful. God values the arts. And friends, you and I as Christians and as a congregation of the people of God ought to do the same. We ought to be a people who value the arts. And again, in the evangelical church, it seems that there has been a kind of a falling away from that. If we look throughout history, we find there are plenty of examples of Christians playing a very instrumental and important role in the arts. Uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, for instance, one of the great composers uh, in Western civilization, would sign all of his music, SDG, Sola Dea Deo Gloria, to, to God alone be the glory. Bach, a committed Christian. Um, T.S. Eliot, one of the great poets and writers of the 20th century, committed Christian. Flannery O'Connor, uh, one of the great fiction writers from the 20th century. Um, Catholic woman who wrote everything in a way that was informed by her Christian convictions. 
and <clears throat> in music more close to our current day there are uh, people like uh, Lecrae in the hip-hop genre, Sufjan Stevens, uh, and then uh, Johnny Cash, of course, passed away several years ago, but these are all individuals who have brought Christian conviction to their art and are bearing a strong witness to a watching world. Christians ought to value the arts, and churches ought to take time to highlight those who participate in the arts. And not only do we have people who are looking to potential vocations in the arts, but we've got all kinds of examples of artistic gifts that exist in this congregation. These windows right behind me in the cross are beautifully designed. Uh, I think Jesse Dudley did those, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, Jesse's got an art show coming up in Indianapolis um, in a couple of weeks. If you came in, yeah, all of you had to come in through the foyer to get in here. Out in the foyer, you'll notice uh, those uh, things hanging from the ceiling out there, designed by a guy named Nick Dodge. It's called Project Radiance. That was his artwork given to us uh, as a church before he left to move down uh, to Indianapolis a couple of years ago. Uh, we have a, a logo. New Life has a logo that was designed very carefully with aesthetics in mind. Jamie Carter does a great job designing all of our graphic design and lifeline and uh, here on the PowerPoint that accompanies the sermons. Um, we have an interior design team here at the church that considers ways to beautify our building, a team that put together the color schemes in this entire new sanctuary and new um, office space when this new building was built, and uh, we have an opportunity soon to see the artistic gifts of the youth of our church. The third annual Go Golden Goose Awards are coming up on June 30th, 8 to 10 p.m. Uh, junior and senior high um, kids are going to be making their own videos and films, and we'll be bringing them and showing them here. Uh, in the sanctuary and the entire congregation is invited so we would love for you to come out and uh, behold the artistic gifts of the youth of our church we have a beautiful quilt that Jane Schwartzkopf made for us uh, a while ago if you go out that door and kind of head toward the fellowship hall you'll see it on the right hanging on the wall a gorgeous display of artistic giftedness so this is something that that I want us to do as a church is to be highlighting, encouraging um, the artistic gifts that exist here in this congregation to the glory of God. So we see that based on all that we have in the scriptures about the value of the arts. But the second thing I want to show you is this, how art is corrupted in the world. Because <clears throat> although art is good in itself based in the intrinsic beauty that exists in God himself and through the artistic achievements of his image bearers. Nonetheless, the world has fallen. It's a sinful place. And art suffers, at least in part, becomes corrupted and perverted and sometimes used for evil purposes because of the fallenness of this world. And so we see an example of that actually just a couple chapters earlier in the book of Exodus, chapter 32. This is when uh, Moses is up on Mount Sinai and he is receiving uh, the Ten Commandments, the law of God from God, and he delays. It takes him some time to come back down and the people start getting restless. 
And so in Exodus 32, starting about verse 2, we read this. Aaron said to them, said to the people of Israel, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O worship, uh, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So here's Aaron. He takes these raw materials, and what does he do? He makes a work of art, a golden calf. I mean, it was probably a beautiful thing, quite frankly, made of gold. And he sets it before the people. But here's where he goes wrong. The making of the calf is just for, you know, beauty in itself wouldn't have been a bad thing. But then Aaron presents it to the people and says, this is your God. Bow down and worship this calf. The calf is the one who delivered you, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but this calf. And so we see how art can go sour. That art can become idolatrous that there are, there are many people who would say that artists and art itself is a kind of savior for them. People depending upon the power of art to save the world and redeem the world and change the world. And the reason that people think that is because there is power in art. There is power in beauty. In fact, the writer Dostoevsky said this, beauty is the battlefield where God and the devil war for the soul of man. Beauty has such a powerful influence. Art has such a potential to influence that it can be used for extremely good purposes or extremely bad purposes. I'm fully convinced that, that minds and hearts are changed, not, not primarily in any nation through politics, but through the arts and in particular in the United States, through popular culture, through, through musicians, through film, through TV shows. These are the things people are watching. These are the things people spend their time devoted to, binge watching, as we learned about a couple of weeks ago, spending hour after hour after hour watching movies, programs, all of which are presenting some particular kind of worldview some kind of view of what is true and what is not. And people are just eating it up. And that's how values are changed, how people's beliefs are affected. And that's why we need Christians in all of those disciplines. We need Christian musicians. We need Christian filmmakers. We need Christians writing plays for Broadway. And not just mere professing Christians, I mean solid, orthodox Christians who love the scriptures and love the gospel and love Jesus and believe in a resurrected Savior. We need those people in the arts. And I encourage you, <laughs> if you're a Christian thinking about doing that, I hope you're not thinking, well, it doesn't seem Christian enough to go and be a musician or be a painter or be um, a songwriter. A Christian influence is needed in all those places. But until then, until Jesus comes again as Christians, and because we live in this fallen world that has infected and corrupted the arts, that means we have to be very discerning about how we 
evaluate and enjoy the arts. And so I, I want to take just a moment to offer you some suggestions about how you can tell the difference between good art and bad art. The golden calf in itself was good, used for idolatrous purposes, should be rejected for that. And so what we find ourselves um, doing as Christians is having to kind of sort through that, and that can be very difficult. What is good in some pieces of uh, art and what is bad? Uh, you know, sometimes there's Christian art and we think it might be good just because it's Christian, but that's not always the case. And sometimes we see non-Christian art and we think it must be bad because it's non-Christian, and that's not necessarily the case. We have to think carefully about these things. So here's some questions that you can ask as you're listening to music, watching theater, um, viewing movies, watching TV. You can ask yourself, what is the worldview being presented? Again, I guarantee you that people, when they're, when they're writing their films and writing their music, they're trying to communicate something. Sometimes that can be harder to discern than others, but what is being presented? An atheistic worldview, a secularist worldview, a pantheistic worldview, everything is God, or a Christian worldview? Another question, is the work truthful to reality? Is this work saying something that's actually true, or is it telling a lie? And you know, in order for a work to be true to reality, that might mean it presents some things that are troubling to us. And that's not necessarily a bad thing if it's truthful. Sometimes works of art are presenting some kind of view of the world that is actually not true because it presents the world as better than it actually is. Is it truthful to the way things are? Does the work encourage virtue? Does this work make me want to be a more virtuous person? Does it bring about compassion and mercy in my heart? Or does this work encourage my sensual instincts or my violent tendencies? What is this work doing in my heart? Is the work <clears throat> executed with excellence? Is it done well? Is there something fresh and innovative about it? Is there skill involved? We've seen the word skill used many times here in the passage that we just read. Apparently what God wants in the tabernacle is things designed well, with skill. And again, just because something is Christian, or just because a work of art is presented from a Christian perspective, doesn't mean that it's done well. And so a guy named Leland Riken says this, the Christian content of a work of art that is technically mediocre does not redeem the work as a piece of creativity. In fact, the lack of artistic excellence detracts from the impact of the Christian content. I mean, the gospel might be presented, but if it's a poor work of art, then the gospel's impact is minimized. And I want to take a moment to recommend to you a book. Leland Riken is the author. That quote came from this book, The Liberated Imagination. And I would highly recommend this to any of you who are interested in studying this topic further. Subtitle is Thinking Christianly About the Arts. Liberated Imagination. Very, very good book. <clears throat> Uh, more questions to ask. Does the word glorify evil? Does it make evil, sin, wickedness look good? Does it make righteousness or obedience to God look silly? Does it mock obedience to God in some way? Is the work overly negative? 
Is it so dark and pessimistic that it completely ignores any hope? Is it completely hopeless? In other words, is it focused on the fall to the extent of ignoring any kind of redemption or hope? That would be an imbalance. But the other side of that coin is, is the work overly positive? Is it presenting a sentimental view of life? as if sin doesn't exist, as if we're already in heaven. We're not in heaven yet. We still live in a fallen world, and it's a broken world, and it's a painful world. And good art will reflect that to some extent, but in balance with the hope of redemption. I might mention, too, about glorifying evil. You know, that's, that, that, that's, a, that's a tricky one, too, because you know, the depiction of evil in a work of art is not necessarily the same as the recommendation of evil, right? Because an evil event is described or pictured, it doesn't mean that the movie or the music of the story is endorsing that. And so we have to be careful about that. We can't just look at a work of art and say, oh, there's some violence in there, therefore it's non-Christian and I can't Watch it. Now, if your conscience won't allow you to, you need to be sensitive to that. But think of the Bible. The Bible is filled with lots of depictions of evil, violence, even sexual immorality in the Bible. But it's all within the context of the overall redemptive story, a Savior who's coming to defeat evil, to forgive sinners of their evil, and to wipe away evil one day. And so, when you're thinking about the depiction of evil, you have to ask about the context in which it is presented in the particular work. Is, um, one other question, has the work been produced merely for financial profit? Is it just pandering to the masses in order to gain money? I'll just give you this passage here, Philippians 4. I think this is uh, a good verse to hang on to as you're watching TV and watching movies and listening to music. Remember this, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely or beautiful, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So that leads us to the last thing, and that is how art relates to the gospel. How does art relate to the gospel? I mentioned this universal human experience that we've all experienced where we see something beautiful, we're stunned by it, we're left in silence, we're left in awe, we're left in wonder, and we just acknowledge the beauty of the thing. But, but he, here's the, the common experience that goes along with that, and that is that the beauty that you're beholding is somehow elusive. Do, do you ever notice that? It's like there's something beautiful there, but it kind of slips away. You can never quite get enough of it. You know, isn't that why you always want to listen to, to that song again? You, know, you hear it once, it was wonderful. The more you like the song, the more you want to start it over. You want to hear it again. Or looking at that painting, and you kind of can't really tear yourself away. We're seeing that sunset. You've seen hundreds of them over your life, but you want to go back and you want to see it again. Something's a little bit disappointing when the sun disappears over the horizon. There's something there you want more of, but you can't get it. 
And I think the reason why is because all manifestations of beauty in this world, whether they come from God's created order or whether they come from a skilled artist, points us to something beyond us. It's pointing us to something greater than us. It's pointing us to something that exceeds our ability to describe and to capture. It's pointing us to something transcendent, something that's altogether good, something that's right, something that we know can fill our hearts and satisfy our longings. All beauty is kind of directing our attention in that way. That's why it seems kind of unsatisfying, but then there's this kind of hopeful yearning that maybe there's something even more beautiful than this. A guy named Leonard Bernstein, many of you have heard of, classical composer, died in 1990. I don't think he was a Christian, I don't think. <clears throat> but look what he says. He's talking about Beethoven here. Beethoven, he says, has the real goods, the stuff from heaven, the power to make you feel that something is right with the world. There's something that checks throughout, something that works, something we can trust something that will never let us down. All good art, all true beauty points us to the maker of all things beautiful. Isn't that exactly what Psalm 19 says? The, the heavens declare the glory of God. They proclaim His handiwork. The heavens, God's created work points to His glory. All beauty is pointing our hearts to His glory. And the natural human instinctive response to that is, is to want more of it and to get inside of it somehow, to possess it, to become part of it. And this is exactly what C.S. Lewis says this. We do not merely see beauty. We want to be united with it. We want to pass into it. We want to receive it into ourselves. And friends, that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ offers to you that you can know the source of all beauty. You can have relationship with the creator of everything beautiful because God has sent a beautiful Savior who has done the most beautiful thing, laid down his life for his enemies, died for those who would put him on a cross in his love and commitment to save and redeem the lost he shed his own blood. And you can know that Savior, not, and you don't have to go to a tabernacle to meet him. You can turn from your sin and place faith in this Jesus and know the source of all things beautiful. John 17, last passage I'm going to share with you. Look, look what John, uh, Jesus says here, praying to the Father. The glory that you have given me, Father, I have given to them, my disciples. I've given to my disciples your glory that they may be one even as we are one, I and them, you and me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. That's what it is to be a Christian. It's to begin to see the glory of God. That glory is obscured until we see Jesus when he comes again, but that day is coming when we'll behold him in all of his glory and all of our longings for beauty will be satisfied. So it's appropriate we close here with this song, You're Beautiful. The gospel summarized so well in one of these stanzas. I see you there hanging on a tree. You bled and died and rose again for me.
you're beautiful. Jesus is beautiful. We're going to sing to him now, but let's pray first. Lord, we thank and praise you that you are a beautiful God. And Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to behold your beauty. And Father, that as your creatures made in your image, Lord, that we would spread beauty throughout this earth in thankfulness to you and in a way that points ultimately to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.